Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co-hosts, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the host will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer. All right, friends, welcome back to Scandal of Reading. My name is Claude Acho, and as always, I'm here with my friends and co-hosts, Jessica Hooten-Wilson and Austin Cardi. Good to be with y'all. I'm excited for this question um, that we're going to start our conversation with. What are your most, uh, maybe one, two, or three anticipated books coming out this year in 2023? Who wants to start us off? Okay, I'll take it. Um, And this might be a good way to harken back to a conversation we recently had uh, about platform and about uh, how we should and should not, perhaps, as folks in ministry, quantify success. Um, I'm looking forward to the book When Church Stops Working uh, by Andy Root, and I forget who his co-writer on on that is. and uh, I need to Google that so I can make sure that he gets properly cited, too. I've referenced Andy Root on uh, previous conversations we've had. He's a practical theologian whose work I uh, admire a lot, that I read um, regularly, and I think he's one of the leading thinkers right now on how to uh, build some rich, substantive theological scaffolding around reframing what we think success is in the church. Um, I don't know how familiar y'all are with with Andy's work, but I highly recommend him. Um, He's at Luther Seminary. Um, But this book, When Church Stops Working, that's an intentional play on on words. It's when uh, he's trying to speak to folks who are are really concerned about the crisis um, or the the ostensible crisis within the church of of numbers decline. But uh, he's really reframing things from a standpoint of, well, let's stop thinking that the problem is about that we need to become more and more relevant and that we need to throw more gimmicks at things or that we need to uh, just... uh, So I don't know how familiar you all are with Andy. Do y'all know Andy and his work at all? I, I do not. Um, I do know that he's really, sp- I mean, I, I, I know of him, um, but I haven't read the books I want to, and this will help me help me do that. I know he's really um, doing some work in um, uh, practical theology and really uh, addressing how the, the sort of rise of the nuns, the re- kind of uh, religious uh, disaffiliation, how the church should respond to that, not with sort of, um, you know, more pomp and show, but actually kind of maybe returning to, to the heart of the faith. So, um, yeah, I've heard good things. I haven't read them, but now that it's anticipated by you, that might push me, uh, push it from my wish list into into a cart on an unknown website to then come to my home. Well, please days. do. As as a, as a practicing pastor, I think uh, it's required reading. I think Andy is right now. Um, it's uh, it's an it's a counterintuitive lens into how to uh, be the church in the 21st century, but I think it's the most 
healthy and um, certainly the most generative that that I'm familiar with of any practical theologian trying to really build uh, an infrastructure around a theology for for ministry in the 21st century. Uh, but the thing about this book, um, and then I'll turn it over to y'all because I'm eager to hear your answers, but uh, this is a book that tries to distill and synthesize uh, five books that he's written, but to make it more accessible uh, for uh, mm. Uh, lay church leaders uh, and to pass it out, you know, and, and be read by folks uh, in the pews because the, re- the other books, they're, they're not specifically written for the academy. They're, they're dense and um, they're, they're not as um, uh, accessible as, as this book is geared to be. So I'm, I'm really eager to read it and it comes out sometime in May. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll find his co-writer so I can make sure that on the back end of this, we can cite that. But, but how about y'all? What are, what are y'all looking forward to reading in 2023? I wish I could say novels, but I end up every time that I have a break and I want some more fiction, I end up reading old books by dead people and not (laughs) books written in the 2023. I am looking forward to at least two books and I feel like a cheater because I've read both of them, but they just don't come out until this summer. But I was able to get the ARCs and I think they're so fantastic that I'm looking forward to everyone else reading them if that makes sense. So Harrison Scott Key has How to Stay Married, the most insane love story ever told. And I just reviewed it. Hopefully it will come out soon with a magazine near everyone. I don't want to say anything in case they reject the review, but it's so good. If you haven't read Harrison Scott Key, have you guys read him? He's a comedic writer. So he won the Thurber Prize back in 2015. It is the prize for comedy in America, the the best comedic writing of that year. And he won it for the world's largest man. And then I also reviewed his second book, which was Congratulations, Who Are You Again? And the problem with trying to move from being a writer to being a famous person and the tension that's there, you know, because he he did become really a large celebrity during those years that the book was so popular but he wants to keep writing. He wants to be a writer, not just a celebrity, right? And it's, it's a, that was a really funny book. This one is about his marriage. And it's going to, the opening, I'm just going to tell you, he has been married for 14 years. He is a Christian, which has not really come out in his work before that he was a Christian, but he had to for this one because his wife of 14 years who was taking their kids to Sunday school every week um, had a boyfriend for two years and tells him. And wants a divorce and wants to marry this other man. And he suddenly realizes this idea he's had that Christ and the church is what makes up a marriage. He suddenly has to make sure Christ is real (laughs) because there's no other way to save his marriage. Right. It's powerful. It is so good. So he really turns and digs into that, reads the Bible. Um, they change churches to like a church plant where people are vulnerable and real and loving God. And it is so cool. It is a great story. And of course, it ends happily ever after, thankfully. But it is, um, it's a miracle wonder. It's getting to see God at work in a real way. So I loved this memoir. I thought it was powerful. It's funny, just like all of his books are. And I just, I really want to share with everyone <laughs> that I know. I feel like whether you're in a healthy marriage or unhealthy marriage, it doesn't matter. You should read this book. It's so good. So that would be my number one. Um, just quickly on the number two is Karen Swallow Pryor's Evangelical Imagination. 
I didn't have, and this is not for Karen, I care, everything Karen writes is brilliant, but I didn't have a lot of high hopes for this because I didn't grow up in the evangelical world. So I thought this is going to be so far removed from me that I'm not going to know all her references. And, and is there such a thing as evangelical imagination? <laughs> so I was really skeptical about the book. It's brilliant. She starts in the 1600s and shows the development of the evangelical imagination and all the images that we have and where they come from and why we think of the Bible and God and relationships and church in the way that we do. It's so good. So I would highly recommend both wow. of those. This is, um, this is great. Cause I feel like I'm just going to like pre-order some new books and, um, and do that and, you know, curse my book budget. Um, cause those things are not, who needs that? Um, for, for me, I'll, I'll close this up, um, with a couple, I'm excited. Uh, I can do a couple novels really quickly. Uh, Colson Whitehead has his second novel in his, uh, her second book in his sort of like Harlem heist series that started with Harlem Shuffle, I want to say maybe two years ago. The next one is coming out this summer. It's called Crook Manifesto. So he's um, kind of um, think like 1970s New York. Um, and it's sort of like these crime, um, kind of crime um, mystery novels. And it's sort of dark uh, a little bit but also kind of funny and it's about a a, a a black man who doesn't want to turn to crime but sort of given the situation that he's in a couple a uh, couple of friends um he kind of just ends up he, fi- he finds himself going down a path he doesn't want to so it's sort of like can he uh it, it's really interesting because he's sort of like am i crooked or am I, like have i always been crooked or am i becoming crooked now um so interesting good summer read i'm really looking forward to that the other novel is uh by jesmyn ward so more kind of in the literary fiction um I think it's supposed to come out in October. Uh, it's called Let Us Descend. So it's going to be, um, I think, similar to some of her... Oh, my computer uh, almost just fell over. Similar to some of her other work, it's going to be sort of this... Um, I think it's described as a blend of magic realism and historical narrative. And Jessica, you'll appreciate this. And Dante's Inferno. Um, so that'll be out in October. So I'm excited about that. Issa Macaulay has uh, his uh, sort of memoir... Um, called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. I'm excited about that. Hans Borsma has a book coming out on a spiritual reading of scripture, which I think would pair really well with Jessica's book that just released, Reading for the Love of God. Borsma's book is called Pierced by Love, Divine Reading with the Christian Tradition. I think that's supposed to come out in March or something. Um, or not March, because it's still March now and it's not out. So maybe maybe later in the spring. So yeah, I think it, you know it's easy to, it's important to read old books, but it's it's fun when there's new things that are about to come out that are exciting as well. So uh, I, have, I have many hopes and um, I'm, I'm excited about adding some new ones from y'all's recommendations. So thanks for the good conversation. We we would really like to hear from y'all who are listening. What are you looking forward to reading this year? Um, share that with us, uh, tweet us, um, let us know. If you're enjoying the show, rate, comment, review, subscribe, share with your friends and enemies and cousins with everybody. Do, do that for us. That'll help us. Um, and as always, stay tuned for a really uh, enriching interview conversation. This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now by James K.A. Smith. This book was named a Christianity Today Award finalist, and in the book, Smith helps Christians and the church develop a sense of temporal awareness that is attuned to the texture of history, the vicissitudes of life, and the tempo of the spirit. 
Smith shows that awakening to spiritual significance of time is crucial for orienting faith in the 21st century. Get 30% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com. Well, this is Austin here, and I am so excited about the interview that we have in store for you today. With me right now is a longtime hero of mine and someone I'm happy to be able to call now uh, a friend of mine, Neil Plananga. Neil, who uh, I'm sure needs no introduction to all of our listeners, but Neil is the author of many books. Um not the way it's supposed to be, a breviary of sin, engaging God's world, reading for preaching, which is a book that has been particularly meaningful in my life, and then most recently, a wonderful new book, Under the Wings of God, 20 Biblical Reflections for a Deeper Faith. Uh, it's a great book. I recommend everyone pick up a copy of that. You'll be glad you did. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Austin. I've been looking well, forward to it. As have I, as have I. This is uh, an opportunity to record conversations like the ones that you and I have had over the last several years. A couple book lovers get to talk about books that we love. Absolutely. Well, I emailed uh, Neil, letting him know that I was interested in interviewing him for this podcast. And I said, you name the novel and we'll talk about that. And Neil selected Grapes of Wrath. And so, Neil, I suppose my first question for you is, what is it about Grapes of Wrath that led you to pick it for this conversation? Well, I think uh, one reason is obviously that it's one of the four or five greatest American novels, maybe along with Huckleberry Finn and the great Gatsby, um, probably uh, Moby Dick. Um it's one of the great ones, and it's also a novel that uh, when I have had seminars for ministers and seminary students, and we talk about reading for preaching, uh, it's a novel we often discuss. I think it's uh, it's got uh, such uncommon wisdom in it. It has the power to move the reader's heart um, to joy in what's just and compassionate and to sorrow and revulsion uh, against what's unjust and cruel. So um, because it's wise, because it can move the heart, uh, because it's a great American novel, it's sort of a natural choice when we get uh, preachers together, uh, and I've used it many times. Well, it's it is it's a great selection, and for all those reasons that you just mentioned, and uh, just personally, it was a wonderful opportunity for me to get to reread this novel that I haven't read in probably fifteen years. So that was a real delight. So I thank you for yeah. uh, giving me the 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 motivation and the reason to do that. I devoured it, and um, it was as rich, if not more, than I remembered it being. And yeah. and as is so often the case uh, when I read novels that. Capture so well the essence of large-scale kind of collective systemic corruption and evil. I, I often can't help but think of of your book not the way it's supposed to be. And uh, I was thinking about that a lot, not just because I was going to be interviewing you for this, but because it it really gives me a good framework for for thinking about books like Grapes of Wrath. And and so how and why do you think this book could be a a helpful book for 
folks in understanding first the the default conception of shalom, which is such a helpful place in understanding for us as Christians to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but then sin is a violation of that state of things. How does this book help us with that? Right. So uh, this is a story, as many of us know who've read it, uh, that tells of uh, sharecroppers who have been forced off their land in Oklahoma during the 1930s. So it's the time of the Great Depression. It's the time of the Dust Bowl and who have to try to find a new place to make a living. And they've heard stories and seen flyers about uh, California uh, as the promised land. And there is that sort of biblical imagery in the book, I think. Uh, and they believe that if they trek to California, they are going to find employment. Um, perhaps they're going to find even a little bit of uh, financial security. And they make their way and your, your heart is with them as they go because they are people who uh, so much need uh, compassion. They need understanding. Um, they need help from time to time. And when they get to California, they run into uh, grave difficulties, including um, landowners who are cruel, who are standoffish, who are unjust. And uh, their trek to the promised land ends in sorrow and ruin. And I guess along the way, um, we see what it's like for people to treat each other uh, justly and compassionately and alternatively, especially in California, what it's like uh, to see others as a mere convenience, which uh, if the convenience fails, these people are expendable. And so um, I suppose the evil lies especially in uh, meanness, cruelty, injustice, and it's enough to, um, to make your heart cry out against it. Steinbeck was uh, an expert in uh, finding the root to the human heart and then um, provoking our hearts either to uh, great rejoicing and approval or else to great uh, sorrow and uh, repulsion. I, I think I think that's so well put, uh, either to great rejoicing or to great revulsion. And I'd love to kind of interrogate that right there. What are uh, areas that you feel like in this novel where we do experience so much hardship and experience uh, through the through the lives of, of the Jodes and others, such, um, such hardship, so, so much revulsion. Where, where, where do you, where do you, where do you experience that rejoicing? Do you think in, in this book? Yeah. Uh, I would say the rejoicing, uh, can be found, uh, as I understand, uh, is often the case in the support that people have, um, for each other who are in the same boat. So uh, when the Jodes camp at night uh, on their way to California, they almost invariably camp with many others. And 
The others are in the, the same fix they are. They are poor people. Uh, they have hope. Um, you know in your heart that their hope is likely to be disappointed or dashed. And so you feel compassion for them. Um, but they tend to support each other. So, for example, uh, they often share what little food they have. Um, at one point, uh, the Jode family has some, some meat, which is rare. They have some ground beef. And uh, they decide they're not going to cook it because the aroma of it would fill the camp with longing and they don't have enough meat to feed everybody. And so they just don't cook it for, um, out of consideration for the others. And that consideration gives me joy. Uh, it shows uh, love of neighbor and um, consideration of others' longings and hopes. And uh, there are other situations in the novel that similarly give me joy when um, I see instances of real fellow feeling, of real compassion, um, of real consideration for others. And I react as I think Steinbeck meant me to react. There are so many times as you're reading the novel, as the Jodes continue onward and they're at camp and they have these experiences with others and, and you see this kind of human solidarity and looking out for one another where you're right. It, it really does kind of lift the soul to an idea of how things ought to be where the world as as it ought to be. And I do think that gives us um, a really good insight into uh, just a, a fragment of a vision of what the world could be were it not for the the violations of, of sin and the ways that you enumerated for us earlier. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think that, um, and I haven't read East of Eden in a while either, but it's really interesting to take those two great Steinbeck novels and look at the way that he captures um, kind of individual evil so well in East of Eden. Not that it's not there, obviously, in Grapes yeah. of Wrath, it is. Um, but with Grapes of Wrath, just collective evil and and you put those together and i think you have a really robust picture of the biblical conception of, of sin and evil would you agree with that i would um individual evil in east of eden um symbolized for me by kathy ames ability to lie and steinbeck tells us how good a liar she was and what her favorite methods of lying were I've never before in a novel seen such a virtuosic treatment of lying as I do in Steinbeck's treatment of Kathy Ames in East of Eden. It's amazing. As you say that, I'd forgotten, but I think I'm right in this. You, you use that as an example in Reading for Preaching, right? I believe um, I do. Yeah, I, th I think you do. As you said that, I remember that. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And also, similarly, I feel that way about some of the treatments that Dostoevsky has in The Brothers Karamazov. He has a part where he talks about liars who uh, are so convinced of their own lies, they then uh, become embittered and... Uh, and upset with you because they believe their lies so much if you challenge them on it. And it's, 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 it's really great on the, the, the nature of how uh, evil can get so deep in, inside of us as human beings. Um, I think Dostoevsky saw as uh, great um, 
moral novelists often did, uh, the power of self-deception. So a, a liar typically lies to themselves. They are their, their first victim. And the problem with self-deception, as my teacher Lou Smeads used to say, is that uh, first we deceive ourselves, and then we deceive ourselves about the fact that we are deceiving ourselves. <laughs> so pretty soon we, we can't find the bottom of our own lies. Uh, all, all we can find is a mass of spaghetti in our soul <laughs> without being able to find the beginning or the end of it. That's so good. That's so good. That's so spot on. Um, so uh, what are other important themes you think uh, come out for us, particularly as, as Christians and, and people of faith in this novel? I think it's interesting to see how Steinbeck depicts Christians. Not very well. Not very favorably. They tend to be um, judgmental. Uh, they tend to be uh, imperialistic. Uh, they tend to be narrow-minded. Uh, he had a dim view, apparently, of uh, at least conventional Christians, and he shows us his view uh, in the book. Um, he's also, um, I think, worth noting as an example of somebody who is a apparently an amoral um, metaphysician. In other words, he, he thinks he, he's an amoral materialist. He thinks that there is not an obvious standard of right or wrong. It, there's just, as Jim Casey says, there's just things people do. So uh, if they... Um, if they are um, promiscuous, if they are even uh, sexually abusive, uh, there's not much you can say about that. That's just how life goes. That's just who people are. Uh, they, they run a gal down like a whore, uh, as if she's a rabbit. So th there are all these materialist images in the book and this rejection of traditional morality on the basis of the materialism. Uh, there's just matter and energy, and who's to say uh, anything by way of judgment about how life actually goes? That's apparently Steinbeck's uh, outlook, but his own view, um, clearly a moral view, emerges in his picture of the conventional middle class. These are little pot-bellied guys who drive their cars along the highway and they've got um, their, their fat whining wives besides them. And they have jobs that are um, uh, exploitative and manipulative and they're completely sold on these jobs. Steinbeck uh, certainly did think there were some things that were right and some things that were wrong, regardless of how his uh, worldview outline suggests, he thinks. Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. And I think that's a helpful thing for us as Christians to be on the lookout for as we're reading it is to see places where perhaps um, some of his 
philosophical uh, convictions might be a bit muddled. I think, too, with um, that, that kind of reductive materialism that seems to be present in the book, it's, it gets muddled with there's a real collective spirit that he wants to point toward, too. You know, a kind of an, an oversoul type of uh, picture that in some ways it's almost like he wants to say we're all individual instantiations of a collective soul. But then in the same breath, he wants to say... Uh, you know, our own individual lives have these great meanings, but what we do with them is just, you know, arbitrary. There's not right or wrong. There's just what we do. And it all seems a bit muddled there. And I think that's a helpful and instructive thing to note for Christians as they read it, because in my view, there's so much inspiring here to, uh, to, to, to provoke our better angels to be uh, much more, uh, prone to the human solidarity and, and all of the above. But then there's, there's um, an important note of, of seeing that what he's critiquing as, as being Christian is, is a really reduced view of, of what is Christian. Right. Um, so, so he's, uh, he's not above caricature of uh, Christianity and of Christians, but um I would have to add that Christians have done exactly the same things in uh, what they have written when they characterize unbelievers. They've often uh, caricatured them, portrayed them as uh, mindless or soulless or lacking in humanity or lacking in compassion. So it's a grave temptation for all of us to caricature our opponents in order to make them easier to, to defeat. I could not possibly agree with that more. Um, and one of the things that was in the back of my mind as I was reading and thinking through where I felt like there might be some inconsistencies, not even specifically in the way that he caricatures Christians, but just the way that um, he tries to maintain this robust belief in a collective soul and also um, a, uh, a sense of uh, material, materialist reduction that one thing interesting to me is is to think about what he accomplishes in the east of Eden from a, a priority and a and a and an acknowledgement of the significance of the individual. What he's able to do in Grapes of Wrath uh, with the collective, and in both of those, perhaps maybe there's a, a telos that's missing, or at least that we as Christians would would say is perhaps missing a transcendent telos at least but in the background for me in reading this was remember that great image in mere christianity where c.s lewis talks about um it's it's in part three about uh, christian behavior and and he talks about fleet of ships and how there are three things that have to be you know uh uh in in right order for it to work there needs to be inside the ship taken care of it's it's relationship with the ships that it's sailing with but then also if they're trying to get to calcutta but they wind up in new york they've gone terribly astray there has to be a telos and and i think east of eden and grapes of wrath to me uh get at that having your own ship right and having uh being in right sail with everyone. And the one thing that, that I, that I feel is missing is somebody reading it from a Christian perspective is just that transcendent telos. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, Austin, I, I think one searches in vain for, um, a transcendent, um, reason for existing reason for striving, uh, reason for living the human life. Um, wh- wh- why do we do this? What are we here for? Uh, I think Steinbeck doesn't give us much direction about that. 
And if he's a materialist, of course, there's a, that's the reason. That yes, that exactly that is the reason then that that follows, and it's one of the things that just makes it. Uh, it begs the question because there's so much in the novel that that seems to be um, not 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 the thinking of somebody who's a truly committed materialist. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, yeah, and it, and it's hard to be a truly committed materialist because uh, truly committed materialism can't make much out of morality. Uh, if there's, if all there is is matter and energy, uh, and this matter and this energy is organized in certain ways and uh, does actions of certain kinds, uh, from where would you get the standard for judging these actions? Uh, it's not as if matter and energy all by themselves can provide such standards, and so it, it's difficult to find. Um, a credible uh, morality if you are a materialist. And yet, every materialist has a morality. If you, um, if, if you cheat a materialist, they're going to be just as indignant with you as if they were a humanist or a Christian. They think what you did was wrong. And so I think it's very hard to be uh, a consistent materialist with a morality. And the result is you get a lot of inconsistent materialists. Well, and one of the great ironies here is that what's so rich about the book is how powerful his moral critique is. Yes. He's, he's spot on. He's drawing our attention to what is a grave injustice. And yeah. he's reminding us of, uh, of just the horrors of um, what we're prone to putting others through as, as human beings. And, and he's right. And one of the things that in this reading I appreciated so much more than I'd recalled appreciating uh, when last I read it were those, uh, the interstitial chapters. Um, yeah. And, and that's where I believe he's, he's particularly um, acute and incisive in, in his moral critique. What, what do you make of those chapters? Yeah. Um... So I guess there are maybe 14 or 15 of them, something like that. Um, they are uh, pauses in the narrative. They don't tell the continuing story of the Jodes in their trek toward California, but they pause to do uh, what amounts to um, a little film of some of the activities that are part of their trek. For example... They can't go to California if they don't have a car. So there's an early um, interchapter that's all about guys selling cars and selling used cars and uh, how they manage to rig the system when they're selling used cars. Uh, as the Jodes travel to California, they have to stop and get gas and get something to eat. So there's uh, an interchapter about a diner. And that chapter is morally uh, extremely interesting because in it, you have um, Al uh, at the, the, griddle, the grill and May, who's the waitress, and two truck drivers who are sitting at the counter. And then a family stops in their 1926 Nash 
and a hatchet-faced man and his wife and their two boys get out of the car and go into the diner. And what happens next is part of Steinbeck's sheer genius. These two little boys who uh, don't have any shoes, don't have any money, uh, find their way to the candy counter and they've never seen anything like it before. And Steinbeck in his genius says that these two boys looked at the candy, candy counter, not with desire or with longing, but with amazement that there should be something like this in the world. And then um, this dad uh, is going to try to buy food for his family. It's, um, He's not got any money to speak of, but he, his family is hungry, so he tries to persuade the waitress, May, to sell him bread. And she says, well, we're going to run out. You know, we, we make sandwiches. You could buy sandwiches. He says, well, we don't have enough money for sandwiches. She says, well, I'm sorry then. Uh, can't help you. And he says, can't I please buy half a loaf? And Al, behind the counter as May Balk says, God damn it, May, give him the loaf. And uh, he takes some money out, um, a dime, and a penny comes out with it. And his boys are looking at um, striped candy canes in the counter. And he says, uh, how much is them stick candies? And <laughs> May says, them is two for a penny. Yeah. And the father says, well, all right then. And she sells the two candy sticks to the boys. Steinbeck tells them that they run out of the restaurant, uh, their candy sticks held rigidly by their sides, not even daring to look at them. And when the family leaves, and he gets the loaf of bread too, uh, one of the truck drivers says to me, May, them wasn't two for a penny candy. Them was nickel candies. And she says, you go to hell. And when the truckers get up and leave, she discovers that instead of 25 cents for pie and coffee, uh, which is their usual, um, what they usually put down a quarter. So it's 15 cents plus 10 cents tip. Each of them has put down half a dollar for May. And so we see these instances of compassion going off like firecrackers in a string. Al telling May to give him the loaf, God damn it. And uh, May giving these boys candy at a bargain. And then the truckers seeing all this and seeing the compassion, uh, deciding to do May an extra good turn and Meanwhile, Al and the and May fighting against their own warm hearts of compassion by cursing. That is a genius scene. Yeah, it absolutely is. And the way you just recounted that uh, right off the top of your 
memory with no notes was absolutely remarkable. I'd like for all listeners to know that Neil had nothing in front of him as he just <laughs> recollected all of that. And I've just read the book and he was almost directly quoting that. So that was very impressive. Um, and, 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 and what's so stark about those acts of compassion and those um, momentary examples of how we ought to be toward and treat one another is that it stands out so starkly against the background of everything else we're reading. Well, and it's also, um, you know, I I like to say, and you like to say that one reason we read is to become wiser. And you read that scene and it not only, the diner scene, it not only moves your heart, but it also makes you a little wiser because you understand after after reading the scene, something very significant, namely, that even among pretty hard-bitten people, compassion is often just under the surface. And if a tough guy like Al at the grill shows it first, it becomes contagious. And then uh, others show it because now they feel like they have permission. And meanwhile, they are a little... uh, shy about the fact that they are actually showing compassion. So in order to diffuse the whole thing, they curse while they show it. <laughs> that's so That's so great. That's so well put. And uh, the final scene of the book, of course, is an absolutely marvelous case study and yeah. uh, showing compassion for another person uh, who's suffering is Rose of Sharon famously, who's just lost her own uh, child in childbirth. Um is in the barn and there's the man who's uh, dying of starvation. And uh, he ends the book, of course, famously with uh, her uh, pulling down the blanket and being prepared to, uh, to, to share with him of, of, of her natural milk. And, and it's, it's a way he closes this with another snapshot of, of compassion. And uh, anything you want to say on that last final scene? Well, one interesting thing to think about is, of course, her milk is the milk of human kindness. And that um, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the word for compassion is racham. And there are many scholars who think that it is cognate with rachem, the word for womb, so that Compassion is etymologically uh, nurturing and pitying the fruit of your womb. So that if that's so, and if uh, Rosa Sharn, who's just become a mother of a stillborn child, uh, shares her compassion, her milk of kindness with this stranger, she is doing what is biblically a compassionate act. That's such a rich thing to note and teach us. And that's such a rich place for us to draw to a close here as our time is winding down. But that's a perfect opportunity for me to then say too, when it comes to just examples and, and, um, and embodiments of compassion and kindness. Um, for everyone listening to this that knows that I wrote a book called The Pastor's Bookshelf that's on reading and particularly reading for the life of ministry. Uh, I was set on this path by Neil. And the only reason that I have that book is because of Neil. 
Uh, my friend and teacher and mentor Tom Long uh, once asked me if I if I knew Neil, and I said no. He said, "Well, I'll connect you with him," and he sent Neil an email uh, saying that the two of you would like to talk. And uh, Neil had never met me, and he read several drafts of a project that I was working on that ultimately ended up being the pastor's bookshelf. Uh, and after a decorated career like his, um, to, to think that he would take that kind of time with somebody he'd never even met, um, it was and will always remain for me uh, the embodiment of compassion and kindness and humility. Uh, so I would be remiss to not say that on this interview. So, Neil, I think the world of you, I thank you for being that kind of uh gift of kindness and compassion for me. And thanks for sharing of all of this with all of our listeners today. You are entirely welcome. And each of us, of course, is called to do what we can for the kingdom of God. I am called, you are called, our listeners are called. Uh, each of us brings what we can to this project. That's exactly right. And as you said, that compassion gets contagious. And uh, hopefully this will be uh, something that, that uh, is contagious for all of you all who are listening. And uh, go read Grapes of Wrath. There's lots in there that will be contagious as well. And please pick up a copy of Under the Wings of God, 20 Biblical Reflections for a Deeper Faith. I assure you that that will inspire you to be more and more compassionate in your life and faith. Neil, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great afternoon. You too, Austin. Thank you. Thank you.